This podcast is brought to you by Watch City Research, your user research partner. Check out watchcityresearch.com for insightful blog posts and to learn more about our UX research services. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the 97 UX Things podcast. Dan Berlin here, your host and book editor. This week, I'm joined by Holly Schroeder, who wrote the chapter Advocate for Accessibility. Welcome, Holly. Hi, Dan. Thanks for chatting with me today. Can you tell folks a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I am a UX researcher and accessibility advocate, evangelist. I don't know. Pick your favorite word. I think uh, geek level 11 I work, um, currently I'm working in the healthcare space. I've worked in fintech as well at a couple different companies. And I have kind of a, I had a windy path to UX from corporate to, I worked at a university for a long time. And then I went and research was sort of the thread that maintained throughout that, that process. I was always doing some sort of research. I got my degree in undergraduate degree in psychology. Then when I was at the university, I got my master's in nonprofit management. And that was kind of the direction I thought I was going to go. Finished that and decided, nope, that's not it. Um, And then a friend of mine went through this program called Launch Code, and I saw his career really take off. And Mm. he said, what do you think about Coder Girl? And I was like, "Eh, I don't don't know, maybe. I didn't really see myself necessarily as being like a tech person. And I read about the UX program, but I thought it was called Ux. So there was that. On my first day of class, I asked where the UX classroom was. Nice. And so I I did the Coder Girl program, completed that, did a front-end web development program through them as well. Although I think I got a pity certificate. I'm like, you know, I can build stuff with templates, but I am no front-end web developer. Fair uh, enough. Yeah, exactly. And so how did you uh, focus on UX research? Well, so when I started the class, I was like, uh, I already do all this stuff. We just call Hmm. it something else. I was like, wait, but I already do all these things. So I figured out what ended up happening was that I figured out I had already been doing, had done all sorts of different research tasks. The new thing for me was the design side, like learning how to wireframe and that sort of thing. It was, we just, you know, it wasn't a heuristic analysis. It was analysis. It was, Holly, can you evaluate the website and make sure it looks okay? So in my head, that task was make sure the website's not garbage. I didn't, I just didn't have the language for it. Anyway, when I finished there, they asked me to come back and TA, and then I mentored there, and, um, you know, my UX career took off. Right, right. Great. And and here you are on an UX uh, podcast. Speaking of your chapter, so let's turn our attention to that. Um, advocate for accessibility. Can you tell us about your chapter, please? Yeah, sure. So I got interested in accessibility initially, probably about, wow, uh, gosh, almost 20 years ago, I broke both my legs in a highway accident. 
And as you can imagine, that was a pretty jarring experience. I went from, you know, being really active and able to get around just fine to I couldn't even lift my hands past my waist. And then having to go through the whole process of learning how to walk again. And it was a good couple of years before I didn't walk without a limp. And it was a very, very long process. And so through that process, I learned a lot about in physical design, how inaccessible so many spaces are. Right. And it was disheartening to say the least. And even more so when I would bring it to the attention of a store manager or a restaurant owner, wherever I was. And they were kind of like, eh, you know, didn't really seem to care. And I'm like, I know that ADA is a law. Like right. I've, I've, you know, we talked about it in my grad school legal class and those sorts of things. I, I knew about that. I didn't know about it for the web until I took my UX boot camp um, and learned about it there. And that sort of reignited it for me between the time that I had my car accident and the boot camp, some of my own disabilities became more prevalent. And I, uh, you know, started to impact my life in a more significant way, including my interaction with digital space and with devices. And so it just kind of, reignited that passion for me and I'm a big believer in universal design for physical space and I think that equity and access is just as important and just as much a human right in digital space yeah when you started digging into accessibility in the digital space how did you start um, learning the fundamentals of uh, of accessibility digital accessibility I got very, very, very lucky to be connected by total chance to a fantastic human named November Champion. And she is an accessibility specialist. I didn't know it yet at the time, um, but we had met through a neighborhood group that I started. Mm -hmm. Then a few weeks later in class, my mentor mentioned that she was coming to speak for us and her name's so unusual. I thought there's no way there's two Novembers right. in South St. Louis, right? So I messaged her and I'm like, you have to be the same one. Or is this what you do? And so I got connected to her. And then my mentor for that class introduced, you know, WUCAG and introduced some of the fundamentals of accessibility. And I just went down the rabbit holes. Yep. Yeah, and what are those rabbit holes? Um, thinking of our listeners, how can they expand their world and knowledge about accessibility? I think that there's different lenses that you can look through. I think there's the compliance lens, which is typically what businesses are most concerned right. with, right? Because those are the ones that can cost them money if they get in trouble for breaking a rule. So the government has a more stringent list of requirements to adhere to called Section 508. And that is the strictest level of requirements for digital space. And then there's the WCAG guidelines. Um, there's lots of guidance. There's some rules. The ADA is applied in some cases. I mean, 
I right. feel like you kind of need to be a lawyer. There's some good checklists. There's accessibility specialists. But to me, the more important part is really understanding the stories and the spectrum of disabilities that exist. Hmm. You know, there's some kind of big buckets that things fall into. You know, you have physical disability, cognitive disability, vision, hearing, motor. Like, there's big buckets of disabilities, and then there's so many different ways that those disabilities can be expressed. Right. And um, how that even two people with the same, uh, you know, medical diagnosis can have really different experiences or how it affects them and their experience or how usable something is for them or what works for them can really be very different from one person to another. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to know how to, you know, there's some basic things like making sure that the code for the digital products that are being designed works with screen readers that you right. can use the keyboard only to navigate. Like those are kind of the lowest bars for accessibility that you have motion that's in the users in control of it. Um, there's some kind of basic baseline things that you can sort of start with, but then there's things that as you get to know people and understand them, there might not be a rule or a law about that, but as you're doing research and as you're getting insights, if you really want to design the best experience, the most inclusive experience you can, it's going to be driven by user needs, not by a rule or a guideline. That's a great point because people have different needs. People have different accessibility needs in the different products that businesses are putting out. So in, in our research, we need to start looking into what accessibility needs are specific for the things that we are working on. Right. And so before any development work starts, I think you have to ask yourself a couple questions like, could this potentially harm anyone? Hmm. Right? Like, could creating this be harmful to someone? Because that's a pretty good reason for pause. Right. Um, you know, does that mean I should stop or does that mean we need to put in safety measures? And also, if we create it as it's imagined right now, who am I excluding? Mm -hmm. Am I excluding anyone? And chances are you probably are, right. you know? And so, but taking that time to be intentional about thinking of it then you start to include those people and the best way to do it is to develop relationships and or network with people who have various disabilities so that you can say hey i have a new i i have an idea for something what do you think mm -hmm. could you use this how would you use this you know and also having resources um where you can do usability testing with people who are actually disabled users who can give you real feedback about whether that works or doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And uh, taking the measures needed to make sure they have a comfortable experience when you're doing that research. 
I think also it's important not to make assumptions about people's accommodations. And I'll give you just a quick example. So I have a friend who is born deaf and often when she is asked to speak and she's kind of someone who's known in her field, people will just assume that she needs a sign language interpreter, hmm. but she doesn't. She's a lip reader right? and she's vocal, she's vocal and she's a lip reader and she doesn't know ASL at all. She doesn't need a sign language interpreter. What she needs is captions. Yep. And so many times people have unnecessarily booked a sign language interpreter and then created this awkward exchange where she has to be like, thank you. That was nice that you thought of that, but that's not actually what I need. Yep. <laughs> so you can save yourself some steps and some awkward conversations. If you just say, do you have any accommodations that I could provide for you? And if you just ask everyone, it's so much easier you know right. because there's so you know it could be large text print for one person or you may have someone who's neurodivergent and very sensitive to light or sound or you know maybe has a lot of social anxiety you know it's like there's you're not going to have the same accommodation for all of those conditions right. and the only way you know you want to open the door and ask a really good open-ended question so that they feel safe to give that feedback. Yep. And, and offering that to everyone because you never know, you know, a lot of people have uh, hidden needs. And so offering those uh, accommodations to everyone is, is just so important. And they could have a temporary disability, right? Mm. So they, in your head, you're like, oh, they're not disabled, so I don't need to ask them. But they broke their legs since the last time you saw them. Right, right. That's a nice segue into the chapter itself where we're talking about advocacy for accessibility. As user experience designers and researchers, we're in a very unique position to advocate for accessibility. Can you give folks some, some tools and tips there and thoughts on, on advocating? Yeah, I think one, going back to getting to know and understand the perspective of actual disabled people, mm -hmm. not just, you know, reading about it from an academic point of view. You know, there's great academic literature about all of these things, of course, but there's also lots of content that's available that's written by people with all kinds of dif different disabilities where they freely and openly share what that's like. And I think that that really helps, those stories really help us understand and it makes it more real. Yeah. You know, one in five people has a disability of some sort and that mental model that everyone who's disabled is in a wheelchair is so far from the truth. Yeah. You know, sure, that's some people, but you know, I'm someone that at first glance, most people wouldn't expect me to be disabled, but I have quite a few disabilities and I've had brain surgery recently. You know, it's not, you can't look at someone and, and know those things about them or what they might need by just glancing at them. Right, right. How do we 
start that conversation with people around us in our companies or other organizations to to be that advocate? I think that the embracing the notion of radical candor, Mm. I think in my experience, you know, disclosing whether or not I was disabled used to be something that I didn't, you know, it would be different depending on the situation. Right. Sometimes I would, sometimes I wouldn't. Now I'm pretty much, I, I say out, but that's really the truth because sometimes I felt like I had to, to be safe. I had to not disclose for safety reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, Now I'm at a point in my life that I'm like, if it cost me whatever the thing is, then it wasn't meant to be. There's something better on the other side. I'm I'm willing to accept the risk because that is just too psychologically painful way for me to live. Like for me, that's just not something I can do anymore. Yep. So there are people like me who, you know, I've had the experience of being the person in the room who's like, what accessibility considerations were made? I mean, that's a really easy question, but it feels big if nobody's talking about it. Right. It can feel kind of elephant in the room when you first start introducing the topic. Um But I do have to say that the more, you know, whether they considered me an irritant or it finally started to sink in, who knows, either way, it caught. Yep. So why is the topic so taboo? Why don't people talk about it? I think because people still think disabled is something out there. It's still being... Disabled is still very much othered in our culture, Mm. and people are afraid of things that they don't know or understand, and that's why I think it's so important for the people who are comfortable talking about their disabilities to do so. Not everybody can, and that's okay. Not everybody who's disabled has to be vocal. Not everybody can or should, but those of us who can you know, I feel like we have a responsibility to do so, Mm -hmm. you know, to be advocates for those of us who, who can't for whatever reason, but it's the unknown, you know, it's like people talk about it. People talk about disabled people the same way they talk about race. They'll be like, Oh, well, I know this guy, he has Mm -hmm. X, but he's not, He's not like those other ones. That's a great point. And, and the the other part of this is that by thinking about accessibility in our design work and in our research work, uh, we can have it affect us outside of work. You know, we need to be thinking about accessibility, not just in design, but in everything that we do. Uh, whether we're volunteering for a nonprofit and we run run uh, an event and we got to make sure there are captions, that sort of thing. Um, there are so many ways to be thinking about accessibility in every part of our lives. Oh, absolutely. Look, Zoom has closed captions standard to all professional accounts. There's yep. no reason not to have live transcript available, like literally just no excuse. 
you never know who's going to need it. I always think about who's maybe here, but can't speak up for whatever reason or is too fearful because they have been on the receiving end of backlash. I've been there. It sucks. Mm. It sucks when you nicely ask for accommodation and you get gaslit in return. Right. You know, that can be extremely painful. And when it's happened four times that week, you know, it really, the emotional toll can be very high. And so I'm very sensitive to that, that, you know, sometimes even if I think, and maybe I could get by, I'll still ask them to turn on captions because I'm like, you know what, maybe I could squeak by, but there might be somebody else here who can't, but can't ask. Right. So great. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks for all of this. Was there anything else about your chapter and advocating for accessibility that you were hoping to convey to folks today? Yeah, I think, you know, I've got quite a few suggestions for reflections, things to think about. And Mm -hmm. I think it's like any other kind of work that requires some reflection. There might be some moments where you're like, that was maybe not my best showing. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you may realize that you are harboring some bias. And what I can say is that, look, we're a product of our environment. It's full of bias. And you're just a human and it's you're acknowledging it and the only shame would be is if you choose to do nothing about it Mm. you know you don't don't sit in shame because it's not productive yeah but do make a decision to that i'm gonna try and change that so if you're like you know i'm hard of hearing you're like deaf people just like It just freaks me out or hard of hearing people who wear hearing aids freak me out like challenge yourself to learn more about what that means uh, you know and to find out what that experience might be like yeah because through that understanding other people's experience i think that's how we make it not scary how we normalize it that's how it stops being othered and it's just part of us and yep. we, we are part of the us. We're absolutely right here. We're 20% of Americans. We're not somewhere else. And any product that's made with accessibility in mind, there will be unintentional side effects that are beneficial for all users. Always. Just like universal design. Everyone benefits from ramps and curb cuts and thank goodness for elevators, whether I could use the stairs or not. Right, right. You mentioned stories a few times. And I think that's, you know, that's actually been a thread throughout this podcast. And there's a big part of UX in general of understanding people's stories so that we can really understand what's important to them so that we can design things that uh, they they love and want to use. So uh, I love the idea of just understanding the different stories that are out there. I mean, the oral tradition of storytelling is nothing new and it's endured for good reason, right? I yeah. had the pleasure of being invited to a friend's uh, Day of the Dead celebration. And part of that was telling stories about their loved ones. Right. And it was 
a really beautiful experience. And I thought about the rich tapestry of culture that was literally being like woven in the air as people were telling these stories. Our brains are just sticky for stories. We are made for stories. And so I think that that is the thing that makes it transforms users into people. Hmm. Well put, well put. Um, so Holly, this has been a great conversation about accessibility and, and thank you for all of this. In our final moments here on the podcast, we love getting a career tip. It's either for folks breaking into the field or who have lots of experience. Do you have a UX career tip for folks? Yeah, I do. So I think that the value of networking cannot be emphasized enough. And I don't mean in a cheesy, salesy sort of way, Mm -hmm. but being really intentional about where you put your energy. So I'll just use Twitter as an example. So UX loves Twitter and there's lots of great people who hang out in Twitter. You can let Twitter be a dumpster fire and just randomly follow whoever comes your way. Or you can curate the people in your feed so that it's people, so that it turns into like bite-sized learning. Mm -hmm. And you have an opportunity to interact with people in your profession who are all stages of their career and get to know them. So you can use it as a tool that helps you develop authentically develop relationships or you can let it be a dumpster fire for me it's been fantastic and i've met amazing people as a result so i'm you know the bluebird's pretty cool by me but i've been super intentional about it so i think that is um ask lots of questions yeah, that's a great point. And uh, I think a corollary to that is find people outside of your normal circles and networks. You know, there's different way, definitely different ways to do that these days. And uh, that is a great way to expand your network authentically. It's all about doing it authentically to, to have build good relationships. Yeah, I think if there's anywhere, like, I feel like UX is sort of the the social worker persona in tech, Hmm. you know, the kind of equivalent We're we're the do-gooders of the tech world, you know, like stick with the, stick with the, the nice folks, the people that believe in mentorship that want to raise up others that are, um, you know, freely share resources and model good kind behavior that, that will, and do it, repeat that yourself. That will pay dividends. Amen. That's that's, that's a great point. So Holly, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, My guest today has been Holly Schroeder, who wrote the chapter Advocate for Accessibility. Thank you so much for joining me today, Holly. Thanks, Dan. You've been listening to the 97 UX Things podcast. Thanks for listening. The 97 UX Things podcast is a companion to the book 97 Things Every UX Practitioner Should Know, published by O'Reilly, and all book royalties go to UX nonprofits. The theme music is Iron Lung by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, and I'm your host and book editor, Dan Berlin. Please remember to find the needs in your community and fill them with your best work. Thanks for listening.